and welcome to episode 56 of the figure podcast each episode we figure out people numbers and images of the past present and future and for this episode we have a fairly topical one given that love island has resumed now in the uk charlotte are you watching it i am watching it mainly because i'm staying with a friend at the moment and it's a great thing to watch with other people but I think rubbish to watch on your own. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of people that watch it on their own. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just feel like you need to have that the back and forth discussion of what's going on and what's going to happen next, which you could do by texting somebody. But I think that if, if, if Love Island existed in isolation and in a vacuum, <laughs> it wouldn't be anywhere near as entertaining because you have to have the, the conversations surrounding it to make it what it is yeah that's true that is true and it provides it provides such a light-hearted way of relating to people which is nice <laughs> yeah I mean it's all about relationships and and psychology and dynamics which is always interesting but I think this year I don't, I don't know if this happens every year and I just forget mm. there isn't anybody that I'm feeling particularly sparky I'm also really sad that the girl from Fife which is where I'm from has left she got kicked off straight away oh no I know she was the best gosh no bias <laughs> <laughs> um so what else have you been up to this week and what else have you been enjoying over the last month I have loved Lupin I'm gonna say it with a French accent um on Netflix so the series two came mm. out have you seen this G I've, I've seen a few episodes and he is stunning. Yeah, Omar C, the main character, is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And I think I've talked about it before, but the way that I describe it is a cross between James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. And it's around the, this gentleman burglar, called, which is called Lupin. And he is obsessed with this series of novels and sort of recreates or, or is inspired by them. And then, yeah, does... It's sort of a, like a revenge series in lots of ways. But there's going to be a series three, which I'm so happy about because I didn't think there would be. But it really ramps up in this series two. They look at a lot of racial issues. They dive into the friendship between Omar C's character and the best friend. And yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic acting and great to have something in a different language, which... I think I again spoke about this before, but when you've got the subtitles, you just have to concentrate on what you're watching. You can't be like texting and watching mm. or cooking mm. and watching or whatever. And I think it's really good to just have that complete focus on what's going on. And then also you don't miss so many small clues or um, incredibly clever things that the character does. Absolutely. That's a good recommendation. How about you? So I got ill at some point in the last like four weeks in which I was pretty sure I had COVID and I kept telling all my uh, colleagues that I had the Delta variant. It was just at the, that time where in the press, there was all this furore around sore throats and cold-like symptoms of which I had exactly. Now, in that like two-day period, I it was like the first time in ages that I'd actually sat down and watched a box set. And I don't know if you've heard of this show called Motherland. No, I haven't. Oh my God, Charlotte, you don't love it. It's so funny, really clever. It's written by Sharon Horgan and Holly Walsh, who are very well-known uh, comedic female writers. And it's a British 
sort of sitcom uh, set in London and it's exploring this very funny middle-class mum dynamic um, where it's just, oh my god it's it's got sort of it's got a sort of outnumbered vibe but it's Love it. set from the mum's perspective um and you just will laugh the whole time and it genuinely brought me so much joy and it was one of those things that I just I didn't want to end because I loved it so much so I would highly recommend everyone check Motherland out it's on uh, iPlayer and Netflix great and I also have been consuming in a binge worthy fashion um which is interesting because I think this is actually in the, the new way that podcasts are going to be listened to I've noticed that a few series have come out like this like almost like Netflix how they're released all at once and I've literally been binging uh, pieces of Britney which is a BBC podcast written and uh, produced I think by Pandora Sykes and uh, I was explaining to Teddy last night actually because he, are, he was like, oh, what is the Britney thing going on? And I explained. I didn't even have to explain that much to him. I just said, oh, she's in a conservatorship. And he said, what is that? I explained what a conservatorship is, which is essentially, you you know, handing over of your rights because you're, you're not able to make decisions for yourself. It's usually given to people who have dementia or are aging and therefore need someone else to look after their estate. And he just said, why does a 38-year-old incredibly talented pop star need a conservatorship and you know hence why we're here with Britney and that's exactly what the podcast is exploring I heard um Pandora Sykes on Women's Hour talking about the kind of oh, Madonna whore dynamic mm. like she's sort of a scapegoat like a cultural scapegoat or a lens through which you can look at all sorts of different things that have happened and changed in terms of society's attitudes towards like pop culture and celebrities Definitely. And and she sets the scene about, you know, what was happening at the time. And you had this weird juxtaposition of, of having like these tween girl bands exploding on the scene. You had Monica Lewinsky, you had Kate Moss, you had all these different strange elements of sexuality. It's almost like weren't quite sure where we were or what we felt about young women and in a sexualized way, especially young kind of powerful women. And mm. she really sets the scene. And when you think about it, you're you're sort of very sympathetic to, if you explode at that time as a young pop star, you don't have, I guess, society's approval on your side. But that that extends beyond just Britney. And even now, you know, we still we still see it today with, you know, even the figure that we're talking about today, Caroline Flack, Meghan Markle, Princess Diana would his birthday was on Thursday or the media's obsession with women and portraying them as a certain thing has just led to to terrible consequences and Britney is no different Mm, yeah the kind of pedestal build them up and then rip them down Mm. pattern that we see with so many women that she really was like global everybody knew who she was and and still today I mean who would be the equivalent Britney is it and is it Billie Eilish and then going back to what we talked about last time on the podcast is that why that whole her covering her body and then the media or her fans saying well it's because we don't want it to all be about her sexuality and then her coming and changing that pattern of behavior and doing the Vogue cover was so controversial for lots of people because it sort of went it's like a breaking out of again boxing women in 
Mm. Absolutely. I think Billie Eilish is that equivalent. But also Taylor Swift was that equivalent as well. I mean, there's just so many. Yeah. There are so many examples of it. And what's really sad is, you know, her family and her parents were bankrupt before she became famous. If I just think even if if you can argue if you could argue that she needed someone to to be her conservator it can't be her parents they're just too invested in how much money you know and how much money she's making so yeah. sad it's 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 really interesting and i would recommend that podcast on also on podcast recommendations i would recommend paul and mary mccartney on table mm, manners that was great so beautiful and heartwarming and i just love their dynamic as father and daughter and the way that they talk about them like the linda is mary's mom um and the legacy and food and her kind of blending of british and american cuisine and then how vegetarianism was not widespread in the slightest when they started doing that and it's it's just it's it's just gorgeous it's such a delicious pun the pun podcast to listen to <laughs> um, I also have a couple of book recommendations just before we get on to our first figure Sweet Sorrow beautiful beautiful book it's a great summer read and it's about uh, a boy called Charlie Lewis and his teenage love affair with a girl called Fran uh, who is a budding actress and he realizes that the only way that he's ever going to be able to take her out for coffee or spend time with her is if he also joins the play which is very out of character. And so he ends up being part of the Romeo and Juliet production of kind of this amateur dramatics. And it is just, it's hilarious and and very, very beautifully written and just a wonderful story weaves in Romeo and Juliet in such a clever way. And you get a kind of, for me anyway, I get an understanding of the text that's different because you're not reading it all in one big block. You're reading lines scattered throughout and then you're looking at how they're playing it and then all these big actor personalities which is just something that's very funny and familiar and and well done because David Nichols who's the author he used to be an actor himself so you can tell how much he's having fun with remembering I think lots of things that he will have been made to do and all the sort of weird exercises Mm. Um, like the trust exercises and stuff where you know you have to fall back into someone's arm or pretend to be a willow branch and things like that so that's a, a recommendation and then two other books are The Offing and The Outrun and both kind of nature books and there's not a huge story that goes through either of them but the writing is absolutely exquisite it's sort of like poetry Uh, One of them, so the Outrun is set in mainly in Orkney uh, and the Offing is in around Yorkshire. Would recommend both of those really great books. The first figure that we're going to be talking about this episode is Caroline Flack. And Caroline Flack passed away last February, uh, just before coronavirus, actually. I remember... I remember it so well. Um, she was a presenter and broadcaster, probably best known for The X Factor and Love Island, although she had a very, very long career. She definitely felt like one of those people that was always going to be around, which is why personally I felt her, found her death so shocking. And you remember where you were when you heard? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where were you? 
um, I was in Frinton trying to celebrate Valentine's Day and it was uh, an intense piece of news to <laughs> to take. And that's why, I mean, that was around the time, the reason that she ended her life at that stage was, you know, she had had a very public breakup, heartbreak, and this trial was going on. Yeah, it was the 15th of February and the trial was set for the 4th of March. And I, the reason I ask you that is that, and yeah, going back to Diana in a way, I know it's very different, but the the fame and the just always thinking that that person would be there. Yeah. it's I can't remember myself when Diana died, but it's one of, I mean, I can remember when various different celebrity figures or huge public figures have died. Like I remember when Michael Jackson died, but with Caroline Flack, there was something that was just so, it just really hit me days and days I just couldn't stop thinking about it and I remember I was with my friend Liv we just had a big Valentine's Day celebration and we just sort of were silent in the house just so sad at her decision and that her life had come to that end in that way absolutely it sparked a conversation as well about kindness and how we portray people in the media, which is still the massive issue, you know, hence with Meghan Markle and all sorts of examples that we could talk about. But um, it was a really, in- I felt like the whole nation just paused quite significantly. And I think nobody was really expecting it. We had seen all this weird coverage of her before this trial. But when someone then actually takes that sort of decision into their own hands, it was, it was such a shock. And I think, I think honestly, more would have happened as a result of it had it not been literally you know two or three weeks before the first lockdown yeah but it's interesting you know she had such a such successful career at a very young age and she was very attractive as well and the media kind of like sexualized her and it was all sorts of things about her love life in you know whirling around and you know you just don't when you see those those headlines and you think of a celebrity you just it's just so easy to forget the real person underneath it and the documentary that was made about her uh featuring her family really shows how vulnerable she was and how sensitive she was to all the men that she had dated and been heartbroken by and that was played out all over the papers Mm, exactly like it's entertainment like it's entertainment yeah it reminds me of that line in um Notting Hill where Julia Roberts talking about Mm. and every time I get my heart broken the papers splash it around Mm. like it's entertainment yeah. And Caroline Flack was that real life person. Yeah. All yeah. tabloids. I think we should just explain for anybody who's not familiar or has not looked into the details of the court case what she was being trialed for. So on the 12th of December 2019, uh, she came back and both her and her boyfriend, Lewis, at the time, Lewis Burton, had been drinking she allegedly attacked him with a lamp while he was sleeping after finding texts on his phone from another woman. He Mm. later called 999 and claimed that she was trying to kill him. They were then both taken away by the police. She was treated for 12 hours in like emergency conditions um, before she was deemed fit for interview. And that was because her self-harm was so bad. Initially, the Crown Prosecution Service decided not to charge her but senior police intervened and then it, I mean, this is what a human rights barrister Charlotte Proudman describes as a show trial because it was a male complainant 
talking about what was termed long-term domestic abuse. But Lewis said this was a one-off incident. He was he did not want to press charges, but they kept on being pressed. And I think it just ran away with itself. It was a really, it shouldn't, it was almost like shoehorned from what I understand into something that it wasn't. And there wasn't enough evidence for people to start describing it as ongoing domestic abuse. Mm. And then what happened following that was that she lost her job on Love Island. Social media just blew up. There was things going around saying this is what a domestic abuser looks like well before the decision of the trial. And really it was, this is what online abuse looks like because people were just go. She kind of went from somebody that the nation enjoyed seeing, looked at, loved in lots of ways, but also kind of would have fun with, especially on the whole people that she dated in the past, like Harry Styles and describing her as a cougar and all of that. And the Prince then, Harry. I didn't realise she dated Prince Harry, but she did. Yeah, Prince Harry as well. Mm. And uh, and then it just it just got so out of hand and she and her mental health was spiralling. And, and I think one of the key things that I didn't realise before was that they had video footage from that night of the 12th of December, which could have been shown at the trial, which was just coming up. And it was that that seems to be a key element of her decision because she was so terrified of people seeing her in that way. And and she had previously, I mean, self-harm and suicidal attempts and difficulties with mental health was nothing new for her. And that's what they explore in the documentary. But she didn't want anybody to know. And that was really what distressed her from what I can see. Yeah. And I think the the reason that it cut so deep for a lot of people is because she had such an air of like confidence, competence, just being like really chilled and just this sort of relaxed, fun person. When she was on Love Island, she just, you know, the whole show was... It's her show. It's her show. She was so in control of it. And she just gave an air that you wouldn't you wouldn't have expected her to be suffering from anything like this and I think that's no. why it was so impactful to people life and soul of the party I think and that's the way that so many people remember her of her beautiful smile her incredible I mean her her performances on Strictly Come Dancing I can't I just couldn't believe I was addicted I kept on watching I literally watched all of them I was like I need to see another dance and another one another one I've rewatched all of it yeah absolutely so and, and at the time that she dated Harry Styles, for example, the reason this was so controversial was because he was 17 and she was 31. And yeah. again, I didn't realise at the time the significance of how much she was absolutely battered in the press all over the place. Because he was had just come up on X Factor. There was hardly anything said about him or it was just that she was a cradle snatcher. She was being manipulative. She was the one that was, I mean, it was all, it's all just such a harmful narrative to pump out about someone, but yeah, the press do that very well. And they, it's the use of words. That's what Laura Whitmore, who's now the presenter of um, Love Island, who did a very tearful and moving tribute to her after the news of the suicide and she just talks about how words affect people. And we cannot forget that. And you might do a throwaway 
comment on social media or or on an article or share a kind of horrible headline about somebody and think that it's just too distant, too far away from you, doesn't impact them. They're not even looking. Mm. And lots of her friends, I think Dermot O'Leary and Ollie Mers talked about that in the documentary of how she would just always be checking her social media and she's looking at everything. Yeah. And it's like death by a thousand cuts or a million cuts, you know, and are much, much more difficult to heal. Yeah. Do you think it's weird that Love Island is still running without her? Yeah, I do, actually, especially because this is now the third suicide in connection with the show because Mm. Sophie Garden and Mike Thalassesis have also both taken their own lives. Mm. And they have introduced more therapy sessions and they've also got social media training and financial advice, which is interesting, for the current Love Islanders. But the other thing that I just felt is really sad watching it is that like Laura Whitmore she's got that bubbly personality and she's very beautiful and you can tell that she's kind of there and trying to step into her shoes as much as possible but it it does just feel so sad without Mm. Caroline and you could see it in the Islanders every time she came in to the villa everybody was just so excited I couldn't really see what the huge thing was. And then as soon as I started watching more interviews with her and reading more about her, I was like, yeah, she just would be a great person to spend time with. And and she she also just loved love. Like she was really, that was a huge thing for her. Heartbreak was horrible and she found it very, very difficult. And so for her to be on that show and for that to be her thing made a lot of sense. I think it meant a lot to her. Yeah, it's quite meta that actually. Yeah. Um, and also the disappointing I think I've seen which is just so predictable is the articles coming out saying you know Laura Whitmore is doing a terrible job and you just think oh, come on people let's learn from not tearing everyone down We're, she's literally taken the place of somebody who took their own life as a result of what was said about them in the media and and then mental instability and then not being able to talk about it absolutely I think that her death, you know, still is still remembered by everyone. And it's weird that it happened just before COVID stuff took over the, the main narrative. But um, it really, it, it really changed how I viewed suicide, how I viewed media's part to play, how I viewed just people's, what the image they project isn't necessarily what you see and it's funny that it took someone who I don't even know (laughs) to change my view on it but it really did I think it also I agree with that and it also made me reevaluate this narrative around mental health and saying we're so much better at talking about it and you know it's less of a taboo and all of this and it just something like that goes actually no it's there are certain ways that we're better at talking about it for so many people and hugely for, for really, really big, big instabilities that have been ongoing for your whole life, there are so many people who don't have, they don't feel that they can talk about that. Mm. And I think for this whole story coming out, I hope it has encouraged more people and people around those who are struggling to realise what it can look like and that you can't, you've got to take these things seriously. Definitely. The second figure that we're going to look at today comes from a 2016 study by Jocelyn Wong and Andrew Penner, which shows that attractive, quote unquote, but 
poorly groomed women earn 40% less than their well-groomed, quote unquote, unattractive peers. And so this is around what has been termed the beauty tax that is essentially saying that women have to spend a lot more time, money and effort on their appearance in order to be, quote unquote, presentable, especially in the workplace, and that there is an imbalance between men and women. And this all comes from We Need to Talk About Money by Otega Awagba, which comes out on the 8th of July, and which I would highly, highly, highly recommend. Of all the books I've read about money, this one is far and away just just fascinating blend of cultural commentary and memoir and really unflinching look at her own relationship with money and how that's changed from childhood through to university. And she just writes with such precision and makes really, really great observations and connections between things. Mm, I particularly like the stuff that she talks about around privilege as well, privilege and money. Yeah, Mm. I've never read anything that's so on the money, pardon the pun, on privilege than written by a take. It just makes me understand different perspectives and and just, yeah, making those connections in your head that you hadn't seen previously or the way that people will talk about it. One example being that the you'll see this with lots of people who have lots and lots of privilege. They'll talk about how hard they've worked before they acknowledge their privilege, that they were privately educated or that they had tutors or whatever it is. And it's the, both of them can be true. You can be a very hard worker and you can have this extra advantage, but you've got to acknowledge the extra advantage. And that really should come first before you start talking about you revising for nine hours. Definitely. And also just this idea that hard work is associated with lots and lots of money. Um, I've noticed this a few times when friends who earn, say, like a lot of money, a lot more than the average of our kind of cohort, and they and they will always talk caveat it by saying I work really hard or I work and it's and it's interesting that working hard because it's funny because there are lots of people that work really hard it's weird that we it's weird that we caveat that there are yeah. lots of people that work really hard and don't earn much money at all or yeah can barely make it from one month to the next and so I thought she observed that well and also hearing you say that stat out loud for the for this section makes me just shudder at the thought of it and every time I hear it I, I my reaction is always the same which is this is ridiculous that we as women culturally will have to have different kind of rule it's almost like an unwritten rule around grooming and beauty you know I would never I would personally never go to a meeting with no makeup on that almost it's like I look tired or I look like I'm not putting enough effort in but where does that come from? I guess it's just because it's the status quo to do that. And so I thought it was interesting seeing her break down the the costs, the literal costs of that, but also all the time spent. Yeah, exactly. And the time is a huge one because if you think about what you could otherwise be doing, if you weren't having your nails done or doing your hair or going for a spray tan or whatever it is. And that's not to say that it's bad to do those things because so many women, me included, I, I love like, I love spending time on my hair or my makeup or whatever. But I think it's this, if you're doing it out of a sense of obligation rather than out of a sense of, it's something that I like to do to look after myself or to make myself feel great. Or then that's where we have a, an issue on time, especially because time really is such a valuable resource. And if you are spending that going going to the salon 
having the appointment, coming back from the salon. And I like that when she did her own breakdown of how much time she spent, she would count the commuting or the transport. And so Tega, basically, she did her own little diary of, of what she spent financially and in terms of time on her appearance beyond things like, you know, brushing her teeth and having a shower and basic um, hygiene. So she spent nine hours in one week, which came to £45. And then in one month, it was 21 hours, which came to £150, which would equate to £1,800 in a year if you were just marking it up directly and I mean what I noticed straight away from reading that diary was again this intersectional feminism point where for black women who have hair that needs to be treated in certain ways or looked after in certain ways and it is just more time consuming depending on which style you want to have that is another huge huge like time and effort and money point that white women don't have and I was reading it and I just thought god it's so unfair like obviously if you want to do that absolutely brilliant but in all if you're doing that so that you can then have that interview for that job or feel like you're quote-unquote acceptable in the workplace then that just is wrong like that shouldn't we shouldn't be expecting women to spend that much time and money on something if that's not what they want to do but just circling back to the stat, which is around um, being, it's around effort more than attractiveness. Because I think it's it's been shown a lot that people who are considered more physically attractive can have privilege over people who are not, which is what Florence Given has previously talked about in um, Women Don't Know You Pretty. And, and then the earning power is also translated and part of that. But what this was showing was the effort. And it's sort of it's almost as if it's like a marker of if you put effort into your appearance, then you will put effort into other things. But then there's this balancing act because if you put too much effort in and people think that that's the only thing that you're putting effort into, then that can negatively impact you. It's, bit, it's just sort of lots and lots of stereotypes. And then it's, it's really alarming of how much of an impact it can make on your financial success. Which is terrifying. Yeah. But I have a weird theory about women that I see who are really successful and by successful I mean kind of our CEOs or like really high powered or you know have their own businesses and I often feel like in not that many of them do I see them showing beauty in a sense of spending lots of time and money on this sort of thing as a priority so you mean that um, people at the top should be more transparent about how much time and effort they put into that? I don't think they do. I think that's one of the reasons why they're so successful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. From what I've observed, I, I think that in a lot of cases, they have spent their time doing other things, which is why they might be where they are. Also, we should talk about how, um, so with men, I guess the one of the equivalents would be like facial hair. And mm. in 2009, people in America with moustaches and 8.2% more on average than those with beards and 4.3% more than those who were clean shaven. Yeah, interesting. With, with, with facial hair as, and long hair, those are two areas in which men have that same kind of strange perception that you're smarter or putting more effort in or you're more professional if you've got clean if you're clean shaven and you've got 
short back and sides. Mm-hmm. But the moustache thing is interesting there because I wonder if that is like a mark of of effort because you need to like look after it in a certain way. <laughs> I don't know because they were the ones earning the most, which is really interesting. It it differs, right? Because I also think that you, as you get older, if you have a beard, you look more mature and you look kind of yeah. more distinguished. So I think then, that can play a part. But then it would need to look neat. I think that's the whole thing, isn't it? It's this, this professionalism, um, which comes into so many different jobs and especially things like air hostess rules and standards, which have been slightly loosened in the last couple of years, but are still very strict. And I guess that's, you know, the part and parcel of the industry. But I think to, especially to, ex- I think it's the heels thing that gets me. I don't understand mm-hmm. why air hostesses have to wear heels when you're literally not allowed to wear the heels if there's an emergency and you need to go down the slide thing no it's crazy I know I know so weird that stereotype is so gendered the final figure for this episode is the image of the friends cast um, of the TV show Friends. And recently there was a reunion kind of doc. It's sort of not a documentary. It was an episode TV film sort of thing that came out um, <laughs> at the end of May. It was 90 minutes, I believe. And it was the first time that we had seen them all together on camera since the show ended in 2005. And it was just brilliant. We watched it together and I liked the format. I liked how it was sort of part memoir, part what are they doing now, part exploring the relationships that they had at the time. There was some kind of funny appearances from very famous celebrities as well. And some very questionable costumes. Absolutely, yeah, and it was great. Um, and the reason that we're talking about it is because it actually garnered quite a lot of controversy. And I think Friends is one of those TV shows that when we look back on it, there are certain things that didn't age well. And I think people were probably expecting a little bit more from this reunion in terms of correcting some of those. Do you think that that's interesting that they, that you thought that they might address that? Because for me... Yeah, I really was, thought they would. Ah. Because I, I didn't think that they would or... And to be honest, I don't think that this is going to make me sound like I don't care about what you know, being inclusive and stuff. And I really do. But I don't think that we can start criticizing and like correcting based on on what we now think is acceptable. So many people have written articles about this, but they don't seem to be the ones that are being read by the majority of people on Twitter, um, shock, of how progressive the show was at the time. And I've been, I literally went through and sort of was thinking about all the different things and reading about it. And so for example, the first LGBTQ ceremony ever shown on TV was the episode where Carol and Susan get married. (laughs) And that episode is problematic in lots of ways watching it now, especially with Ross's attitude towards it. But I don't even think that that's bad because I think it's like very, very normal for him to like feel jealous about Susan and feel jealous about the whole situation. But, um, but for me, what, it, I feel like the writers are doing this and I think this is what so many people seem to have missed is that we're laughing at Ross in a lot of that episode because it's so ridiculous that he thinks that he's the reason that she's now attracted to women and it's just 
other characters can see that it's weird that he's sort of being all funny about it. But then what was the other thing that's lovely about that episode, which I rewatched recently, is how he walks her down the aisle in the end because her parents have, Carol's parents have refused to come because they don't support it. And that, and then Ross takes the place and he walks her down. And you kind of see this, even within that 20 minute episode, this arc of him freaking out and being very self-centered and thinking it's all about him and then just not being okay with it. And mm. then going to a point where he's like part of the ceremony. And yeah, I just, I, I think that people need to look at things as a whole and remember the endings of the episodes. And another example of this is the episode with the male nanny where Ross is, weird about it again <laughs> and it's like asking if the guy's gay which has absolutely nothing to do with his job <laughs> and and then at the end there's this lovely scene and it's talking about how ross was didn't fit into the real boy quote unquote sort of playing with like toys that are boys toys and he want him he he likes dressing up and having his tea parties and things and they have all sorts of references to this and he was more sensitive and he did like he just wanted to play with his dinosaurs and all of this and this and he talks about kind of the toxic masculinity expectations around little boys and if they don't fit into that then what happens in that and really that that is a, a sticky point for him in his own childhood and how he's developed and that the male nanny is really pressing those buttons and making him see that he's that he actually would have loved to have had a space that he could have been that himself as a child mm, yeah it's funny friends is great looking back at it now it's 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 set up so many formats of television that I guess we've enjoyed since um and so revolutionary in that way what did you think about them talking about their relationships at the time that that revelation about David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston having a crush on each other and actually couldn't believe that their first kiss was on television I loved that little bit of juicy gossip. I mm. am so here for details like that. And I also made me think that maybe that is why that kiss was so good. I maybe. Think- yeah. I mean, my skeptical brain is like, that's a really easy way of creating buzz around it. So yeah, like, like that's kind of my skeptical go- mind going, yeah, that was that because that created so much attention. But like, that is really funny to to think about um and if that is true then gosh that's so funny to think that they <laughs> really liked each other and I and I and I do think that about on-screen chemistry can you really fake it completely or is there always an element of truth probably element of truth mm. and I think we'll just broadening it to the whole chemistry of the cast in general that is what makes that show the best you know that those actors love each other so much and they love those characters and they love the whole team and everything about it and it just comes across so clearly really from the beginning as well it just gets stronger and stronger as you go on and seeing them all together and especially I love the opening and they come back into the set and they can see you know things like the beam that was removed (laughs) yeah and and just seeing it all there together on the sofa and everything it's just they they just love it and I love I love it because they love it you know it's just you feel their it's infectious their happiness and their enjoyment of each other's company and and the stories and what they created is just oh, I, I just love it <laughs> I think it was funny as well there was also a lot in the press about um Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox and 
I think women, yeah women get this all the time about how much plastic surgery they have how much they haven't mm-hmm. versus Lisa Kudrow and I mean there are two points the first is Lisa Kudrow was such a example of how you don't want to be messing around with your appearance as much because she looked brilliant but at the same time I am so against criticism of women who have plastic surgery because or Botox or anything because it's there are there are very different beauty standards for women I mean look at I mean the stat that we literally just talked about shows that so Mm -hmm. um, I find that really annoying when people constantly talk about it because we just don't really do the same with men yeah exactly and I think you're right we just do focus on that too much when really we should be looking at them as actors and and creative people and and I've honestly I've re-watched so much more friends since this reunion it's I've always loved it and I've watched yeah, it me too. Time. but I really have gone into like a new level of, <laughs> of <love>. <laughs> <laughs> um and it's just so well acted it's really, if you look at certain really dramatic moments in that show, especially between David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston around their arguments over the that guy, Mark, who Ross gets really jealous of, and then oh, yeah. they break up and they're getting back together and they're, and the final episode, which again, I've watched recently. And, and I'm also so glad that they did not try and do a, in 20 years time, this is what we're doing. And yeah they couldn't have yeah they They, couldn't have they would have ruined it and that final scene that they have where they all put their keys on the counter it makes me cry every Mm -hmm. time and it's such a simple symbolic gesture of just moving on and leaving and it's just perfect I'm so happy that they left it perfect and didn't go back and add more to the story definitely yeah I also just while we're on the kind of the the cancel culture element around friends which came around when it was put on Netflix again and there were all these headlines going like generation z are canceling friends because of all of these different things that they didn't get quote unquote right in the 90s and early noughties I would love to just run through some of the other progressive aspects that I've been thinking about and I'm not to, it's not to say that there aren't problematic things that absolutely are, especially around the way that they talk about trans and lots of homosexuality in terms of like Chandler's dad or Carol and Susan. But there's also a lot of things that you need to remember of actually that was that was really radical for the time. So um starting with the female orgasm bit with uh <laughs> Monica. Yep. <laughs> doing seven and going through the different erogenous zones and like teaching Chandler what to do um was radical still would be like we haven't really seen anything like that since (laughs) that was great Um, I was thinking about age differences between um different couples like Frank and Alice and Monica and Richard and how that was they're just showing a special bond between people regardless of age and with no like judgment with from some characters but eventually people coming around to it and there were obviously complications there but then they worked through it and I thought that was really good different representations of motherhood so we've got Rachel getting pregnant after a one-night stand with Ross we've got adoption with Monica we've got surrogacy with Frank and Phoebe being the surrogate for her brother 
We've got safe sex over the fight for the last condom between Rachel and Monica, where they do rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> um, a lot of casual sex, which again was not something that was seen a huge amount back in 1994 when the first episode aired. This was pre-Sex in the City, which aired in 1998. Um, we have Rachel's whole arc of being like this sort of very spoiled child and then taking that responsibility and working her way up through the fashion industry we've got suicide and homelessness talked about very openly from phoebe and her saving earl the guy when she's on the phone to him um and then like divorce and divorced parents and the impact on children yeah there we go that's a huge long ramble from me but nice one sharp you are <laughs> officially the biggest mega fan but you're right (laughs) a saving of living in living in your early 20s mid 20s with your best friends that time of life is a really special time of life and it's represented so well but I think I think the criticism does come from only showing one like just even just racially Mm. that's just one type of experience um but back then, you didn't have main characters who were black or Asian or it just wasn't around. Um, and that's not to say that that's excusing that, but it's really obvious now. Like, it's very funny to look back and when you have shows like Bridgerton that are sort of blind casted, mm-hmm. the difference is quite staggering. But I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm being devil's advocate here because... It's interesting to do that, but I do agree with you that Friends was so radical and there were so many things about it that are just brilliant. Yeah. Regardless of time. And I think we can look at things as a whole. This is my, I just keep talking about this, but we can't, you you can't just look at something, go that, I don't like that they've talked about people who are like bigger or more overweight or they use the word fat all the time in the show. Yeah. And therefore I'm not going to watch it and I'm not going to give it any airtime because if you had that attitude, you would just, I mean, what, you wouldn't be able to find her hardly anything in history to read or enjoy or, or learn mm. from. And also it's the learning from it. You know, it's great that we can look at this now and recognize and go, they got that right. That isn't something that was good, but look at all these other shows now who are doing better. And it's about just, just doing better and better. And we're at an interesting point culturally, I think with that. I think that's that's something that we're really navigating. Like how how far to the extreme do we go before we find a middle way? Um, and I think just as a culture, you know, we're now actually thinking about cancel culture and actually going, oh, that wasn't right that all these people are just silenced automatically. Um, and I feel like it's coming back a little bit the other way. And we can have conversations about things that are pretty controversial. Revisionist history is always dangerous. And we can't we can't look at things in isolation, um, as you said. And I think, yeah, I think with this one, this thing with friends in particular, I personally loved it. I can understand the criticisms, but overall, I think we needed it at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. I might just finish with um, a quote from Matt Haig, the author, who wrote a really beautiful Instagram post when the reunion came out. And for me, he just... Oh, he- this is... Yeah, this was great. He summarises what it is that we love and, and why it's important for me. So I'm just going to read it out. I know it is dated in lots of ways. 
Some of the jokes are massively off these days and probably even were at the time. The cast is hardly an accurate reflection of New York's cultural melting pot. Even the Jewish and Italian-American characters are kind of culturally stripped. And even in the 90s, unemployed actors and waitresses did not own apartments the size of Downton Abbey in Greenwich Village. But I owe this show so much. People who moan about it lacking edge miss the point. Friends is comfort TV. It is not realism. The clue was right there in series one, episode three, when Phoebe compares Rachel leaving Barry at the altar to Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk getting magic beans. Okay, but Phoebes, Phoebes, Jack gave up a cow. I give up a orthodontist. It is a fairy tale. It is a continuous happily ever present. When I still had agoraphobia and panic disorder, this show soothed me like nothing else. The familiarity of it, the easy back and forth, the friendship. I had no social life. Agoraphobics tend not to. This was my social life. This was my therapy. It certainly had a lot of couches. And by therapy, I mean talk therapy. Compared to later stuff like The Good Place or Brooklyn 99, Friends was never about incident. It was about chat. It was social media before social media, but one you could just watch without having to write a long-winded post like this. <laughs> Every episode was kind of the same. That was the point. Even the titles were the same. The one with dot, dot, dot. That is why Friends never dies. Even the original shows were already repeats. That is the point of it. Just as a dog seeks the same blanket, Friends offers the same coffee shop, the same dilemmas, the same everything. The characters' worries were soothed with each, within each half hour. When Rachel watches Days of Our Lives in the show and mouths the words, she watches it for comfort. And this is how we watch Friends. It makes our own problems feel temporarily a bit more solvable. They weren't just friends. They were, as Rachel realised, magic beans. They helped you leave your world for a while. I love that. And it's so true, this, this, I think, for so many people. It's the perfect antidote to whether you're feeling like you don't have any friends or you're having a mental health moment or you need just light relief. I can think of so many examples of people I know that turn to friends and, uh, Comedy is always something that I think is so powerful, whether it's talking about a controversial issue, whether it's making light of something, whether it's just comforting, whether it's taking your mind off whatever it is that you're thinking about. It's so powerful and Friends is a really good example of that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Figure Podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram at figure podcast and anywhere that you listen to podcasts we would really appreciate if you could leave a review five stars hopefully um <laughs> if you liked it and we will see you next time um.